0: Hello Coconuts, today in TFC Stock Geek Out, we are covering a popular request from the community. Oh, we do that. That's horrible. Hello Coconuts, today in TFC Stock Geek Out, we are covering a popular request from the community. This company turns a bunch of data into something that can actually be used and has become the household name in the B2B space with even government clients. And this company is Palantir. Joining me today is Eugene Ng from Vision Capital and Vision Capital Ventures. Eugene's career in finance spans over 11 years, with stints in both Citi and JP Morgan. For reference, this episode was recorded on 15th April, 2022. Our discussion today is solely for education and entertainment purposes, and it does not serve as any form of advice or recommendations. Thank you for loving what we do, and please subscribe so we can get even bigger guests. Now, let's geek out. <laughs> Hey, Coconuts, welcome back to another Stock Geek Out with me, Rakesh. And today we have Eugene Ung, right? So we're going to be talking about Palantir, a great uh, company. I think a lot of our Coconuts, a lot of our viewers have been sending us comments on doing a Stock Geek Out, so we thought we'd get the best person for it. Eugene here uh, has created a massive thesis <laughs> and, a, and a nice document for us to, to go through. Uh, he's done a lot of research here and quite extensive in this regard. So Eugene Ung is the founder and chief investment officer of Vision Capital and Vision, Vision Capital Ventures. He's also an author of the Amazon's best-selling book, Vision Investing, How We Beat Wall Street, and You Can Too. Thanks for sending me that book, by the way, Eugene. That was, that was awesome. <laughs> My pleasure, Rakesh. Uh, Eugene's career in finance spans over 11 years, starting you know in, in city as a management associate. And then he moved to JP Morgan, where he was providing FX and interest rate sales and advisory, for over eight years and he rose all the way up to, to VP, right? Vice President. On the fun side, uh, Eugene is a massive sportsman and he's looking quite fit right now. I think he went for a swim earlier today. I don't know. <laughs> uh and he actually represented the Singapore national team in water polo. There you go. So it was for a swim, man. <laughs> um and they won they won gold. Was that was that twenty second gold, was it uh Eugene or?
1: Yes it was. in uh, back in two thousand and seven
0: awesome wow the southeast asian games nice man good to have you here
1: good to have you here Rakesh. thank you thank you for inviting me
0: yeah all good okay so i mean today we're going to talk a bit about palantir understand a little bit more about what they've been doing right i know uh they've been uh sort of went public last year i think it was it september a couple of years ago sorry mm-hmm. um and, you know, the stock has been up and down a little bit. People have been pulling out a little bit. There was a little bit of uh, issues with that. Love to, for you to shed some light on it. And more importantly, where, what's next for, for Palantir and where can we fit that in our, in our portfolio, so on and so forth, yeah? Happy to do so. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so before we start on Palantir, I think it's really, really important, Eugene, for you to explain what sort of investor you are, right? Um, how do you look at stocks? Maybe take us through that.
1: Okay, sure no thanks a lot, Rakesh. I think just want to run through a little bit of how how I look at investing so I, the mm. way I think about investing is really being investing in businesses and not really trading around them and 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 having very short term horizons. So my investment okay. horizons tend to be very long term uh i I look at holding own these businesses for basically years if not decades, so it's really almost forever. Okay. Right? so you would say uh, more I'm,
0: than five years
1: more than five years easily okay. yeah yeah, so Got I aim to hold, to hold them for as long as possible. Um, I'm very fundamental-only, bottom-up driven, uh, mm. and I basically I long do I do a long-only strategy for public listed equities. I don't without any leverage, without any hedging, without any derivatives, or without without any short selling. Uh, the the main nice. reason for all of this is because I don't want anything that gives me unlimited downside. I like mm. things that have unlimited upside and very limited downside. So I think I positioned it all the way uh, from a strategy perspective to remove anything that, you know, that presents, uh, that removes or gives me all, all this unlimited downside. Um, the vision okay. really is to be really focused, uh, on our mission, really is to invest in companies that reflect our best vision for our future, changing mm. and shaping the world for the better. So I really call it, um, vision investing, which is also what I wrote in, in my book, yep. because I feel that in, and in, 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 if you think about it in the long run in the building a great company really takes time. And I think that's really why, you know, we really seek to invest. For the long term, like I mentioned just now in this businesses, mm. So it's really for years and for decades, right? Uh, I look at a couple of, of things that I really look at. So I think the first one that I want to look at is really um, businesses with very strong management. I want to have a very singular focus and just finding and owning the best businesses uh, with strong management ability to really to innovate and execute through such okay. very long periods of time, right? Most of them are typically founder-owned, um, founder-led, mm-hmm. they tend to have very high insider ownership, and they also led with, or they can be also led by very strong, experienced professional managers. Um, the the fourth point is that they tend to be top docs and disruptors. So they're often uh, well-established, well-positioned, or well-poised to disrupt yep. a potential large market opportunity. That's okay. really supported by structural long-term tailwinds, not headwinds. So I'm really looking for, if you think about it, the monopolies or the olig- right. oligopolies. And within these monopolies and oligopolies, that are probably top one two, uh, within their specific niches mm. or all sectors. Because monopolies and oligopolies tend to allow you to have pricing power, certain competitive advantages, and you're able to run all this through. As a result, the companies tend to be able to keep growing faster than the, than the market, gain market share, and also have certain pricing power and able to, to, you know, provide more value. And as a result, extract more value and, 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 and make more profit from that. So I'm really looking at, at that. Right? And ahead. also in this, if you think about it in an entire stock universe of just like over hundred plus years, I'm looking really for this minority of, of, of these super tower companies because almost 1% of the businesses generate close to majority of the returns. So I'm really fishing in a very, very small pond and uh, just trying to basically read out and, and find characteristics that allow me to find these great businesses and basically mm-hmm. own them. And in terms of the business itself, I'm really looking at a very strong moat and financials. Uh, I love businesses that have very strong competitive advantages. Uh, I, like, I like network effects. I I, I, um, I like them to be extremely scalable, meaning if you know suddenly if the, bus- if, the if the revenues or the business comes in and, and it's great and it can come in two, three X, the business should be able to scale almost infinitely. Uh, I wanted to exhibit very strong operating leverage, which means um, improving prof- profitability, which means as the revenue grows, um, what we have is basically your sales and marketing expense, the margins of that, the R&D margins, um, and also your, your your general and I mean GNA expenses margins, all this can basically glide down over time. So as a result okay. if you think about it, as the top line revenue grows, the profits grow even faster. And that's really mm. what, what what's even better. So I, I also like businesses who tend to have also very strong recurring and growing revenues be, uh, that are growing very rapidly and more importantly very durably. Because when you're looking to own businesses, right, there's at least three to five years, ten years. You need companies to be growing at at a very at, at high rates at a, for a very very long time.
0: Mm. And uh, what do you that, mean by what do you mean by high rates? Maybe so give me rates, some, some figures.
1: I look for most most of my companies that we own uh, that I own at least their, gro- their revenue top line growth rates have to be at least ten or fifteen percent and above. The, my, okay. my 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 portfolio mean growth rates are around thirty percent on okay. on a the, the revenue growth rate.
0: Got it. Got it. Yeah.
1: And, and more importantly, they need to have strong balance sheets. When I mean strong balance sheets, what it means is that they are typically net mm. cash. They tend to have little or no debt. De- debt is it's, it's, it's a two-sided, two-sided thing, right? When, when, when you can use leverage, it can help to improve margins. But at the same time, when you have debt uh, and some things goes up, for example, now you have a year a year upcoming in a, an environment of how possibly higher possibly higher or rising That's interest rates. Yeah. That that becomes a problem because then you need to basically raise more at high interest rates and if your profitability margins you know get affected and you have no room for that, that can significantly affect it. So what what we're trying to do Got is it. really eliminate um you know all kinds of characteristics and trying to just have all of this in place and, and just allow our companies to just keep growing and not have any major stumbling blocks and allow them to to, to stumble basically. If you think about it, it really ties back to what I have in which I mentioned was really vision investing. They need to mm-hmm. really really be creating meaningful impact. Mm. So I tend to be investing in businesses that are really technologically driven, which why, why, which, why uh, you know, we're going to explain why we talk about Palantir as well. Uh, uh, they're really disruptors, really, um, the product and service tend to have a potential to really disrupt existing technology. And in Tusso creating this meaningful impact that I say and really making the world a beautiful place. Uh, we tend to God, avoid yeah. that. Really refrain from investing in companies that harm our environment and society in the long term. Okay. So I tend not to invest in gambling stocks, uh, energy stocks, okay. and, <laughs> and, and, and stuff. Right? I think that's really, or I t- tend to not even invest in uh, in a pure play companies that say, for example, they feed on addiction or seek to harm others. I think I ultimately, right. you know, I want to be owning the best kind of businesses that are really just changing and shaping the world for the better.
0: Okay, cool. So if I can quickly summarize that, one of it has to be found a lead, right? Because um, the reason here is for drive, for, for push, for int- intrinsic motivation, more than just about the money. Then you talked a lot about, um, you know, a monopolies in the sense where um, they have the the grasp of, of the total addressable market and really to, willing to scale and the ability to scale quickly, which is why you also look at technology companies, um, stuff with not so much in terms of scaling in terms of overheads, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and last but not least, I think one of the one of the things you mentioned was the ability, just like you mentioned with yourself, how you try not to have unlimited downside, you don't want the company as well to have unlimited downside. So the debt has to be manageable. Profitability needs to be there. It needs to be uh, cash uh, ready in the sense where, if something were to go wrong, they have this pool of cash to, to go in for it. So FCF is probably a very good play for you as well. Um, those are companies that you look at.
1: Absolutely.
0: Awesome. Cool. So take us through Palantir, right? Why? So after all this, you've chosen Palantir. Uh, <laughs> oh, as a quick overview, maybe tell us a little bit about Palantir. What, what does Palantir do for our listeners out there?
1: I think, let me try to give a story of why, how, how did Palantir, the name, come come from, right? Mm. Palantir was actually a story from the Lord of the Rings. It came when Peter Tew was actually, um, you know, wat- watching the Lord of the Rings or reading the, the fantasy novels, as you know, by, by Tolkien. Palantir is actually one of the several indestructible crystal balls that used to be communicated with other Palantir readers uh, in, in the Lord of the Rings. And basically, they could see the future, the present, or the past, Mm. Uh, and, and a major theme of Palantir was that they actually show these real objects or events and those using these Palantir stones, right? They had to possess great strength of will and of mind to direct the stones gaze to its full capability. Now, I want to go back to what Palantir is, is right now. And I'm to, I want to phrase the problem that which Palantir is trying to solve. So the problem that we really have is that a lot of companies spend lots of money, billions of dollars. And a lot of time to try to create their own custom software from scratch. Most of the time, try to create and to monitor data and try to make mm. sense of this data and, and, to, and to get some ins- insights. But the most, but the but very problematic thing is that most of them are unable to deliver and all of this data is not up to standard. Most of them, what we have in, in the market are generally, I would say, mixed match solutions. Uh, they're not customized solutions to be able to allow them to aggregate data across various um, silos and to create okay. this actionable insights. So I think this is really what Panantir came about. Uh, Penantia came about um, when uh, after Peter Thieu and after its PayPal days, they decided yeah. when they were trying to solve um, the, the, the PayPal issue of fraud. So they, they, mm. they, were, they were trying okay. to come up with, with, a, with a solution to try to solve it. And then they realized, ah, okay. When they, when they kept using uh, an AI way to, to track it, they realized that the, 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 the tracks kept evading it. Then after Mm. life, they needed a, a combination of what we say a human AI, a human plus an AI approach. And that's why Palantir also came about. And, and and at first I would say when I first looked at Paninti, when and IPO prospectus I wasn't really too so excited because I think at that time a lot of their narrative was around Palantir supporting the US military and for me as, as I've shared just now vision investing really is if I'm if you're supporting the US military and you know and somehow we're killing lives that's something that's kind of antithesis to, to what to what I do but right. what happens was that almost just about two years ago about one plus year ago I started reading Peter cube's book zero to one and I think that that okay. really caught caught my eye uh, from from this aspect and specifically his book right um, he actually sh- he actually shared, shared a couple couple of items and I think one of the items that that was really shared was was this so I want, I want to run through this in, in, in this in this specific term so he actually said this when we founded Palantir it was a software company that helps people to extract insight from divergent sources of information mm. and, 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 and one thing about Palantir was also because it was so complex and the, and, and the revenues were so high, it, they actually work best when they have no salesmen at all. Palantir doesn't employ anyone at the time tasked with selling his product. Instead, Alex Karp, which was his CEO, and she spends CEO. 25 days a month on the road meeting with clients and potential clients and their due sizes were between 1 million to 100 million, right? Mm. So At that point of time, at a price, price, price point, buyers want to talk to the CEO, not the VP of sales That got me really thinking, okay, now they're trying to solve a really tough problem. And it's a problem that apparently is so big that people are willing to pay lots of money for, and they yeah. want to talk to the, to the CEO. So that really got me thinking, am I, you know, re- looking at that at, at this story incorrectly, right? So when I was relooking the the Palantir's um, annual report, these three things really caught my eye, uh, or these four things really caught my eye. I think the first one is Palantir's customer acquisition strategy. They really target large scale, hard to execute opportunities at hmm. large government and commercial institutions. Now, I just want to think about it. Large scale, hard to execute opportunities. Which company yep. out there actually, says, large, actually focuses on this, right? And the second one, the high installation costs the high failure rates complexity of data environments and the long sales cycles actually raises the barrier of entry for competition which is actually beneficial for palantir which is mm. which is just insane of how i'm thinking about it and the way Palantir is saying this right at the third point the larger and more complex the more technological demanding the problem the more likely palantir is to succeed in all my in all my years of reading hmm. annual reports, I have never seen a company write anything even remotely close to this. Like the more complex the problem, the larger it is. So, <laughs> like,
0: like, so the
1: more I aim to succeed.
0: <laughs> so, in other words, the harder the problem, the better we are. The better we are. Yes, That's yes, effectively are what Balaji is trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. The other question I have is, you know, you mentioned data, right? and I presume this data is is related to all the, the back-end stuff and, and all the, the... I think Palantir was, was invested, uh, CIA invested in, the, in Palantir, if I'm not mistaken, as well. or well, I think the, the US government as well. So this sort of data that they're collecting is about personal information. It's about um, confidential, sometimes confidential information that they're giving to the government for analysis and so on and so forth. Now, given the inelastic demand for the customers that need this sort of... Um, information, you also don't have a lot of people that want this sort of information, right? So your clientele is not very high as compared to, of course, the the, the SaaS com- companies and so on and so forth. So why? How, or how do you see this playing out for Palantir? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing?
1: I, I think it comes back to what kind of data analytics does Palantir do? So Palantir is really not in the business of collecting mining or selling data like like any of Mm. the other guys. But they're really integrating the data that the customer already has and analyzing it for them. So it's really, if I think about it, it's really just taking the data, the customer still owns the data. Palantir basically processes the data. So with the data that the customer basically has, what Palantir does is they construct this real world from this countless data points and allow them to kind of project where it could be, where the solutions could be. And more importantly, it actually allows the customer to really monitor and control access to this data you know, when, whenever they want to use it. So I think that's really a very key differentiating point. It's not like, um, like some of the Facebooks or the Googles, right? when they're actually aggregating the data, they're actually collecting this data and owning this data. And when you're owning this data, you have all kinds of data privacy laws and and, yes. and, and can have all these problems that come along with it. But actually, Pantera does not own any of the single data. The customer still owns the data, but Pantera just merely basically processes the data and, and basically provides these actionable insights uh, for them.
0: Got it, got it. Okay, cool. So then effectively, it's a processing plant, right? You filter You filter all the, the raw materials here, come out really nicely for you in charts. So then your C-suite is able to action it. Absolutely. Okay, cool. So take us through some of the products that they have.
1: Yeah, I think Paladin basically has three main platforms. So they started with Gotham, then moved on to Foundry, and then moved on to Apollo. Let me try to run through kind of what, what, what is basically each one of them. So hmm. Gotham is really the, the first one. When they started with data analytics and insight it was mainly started to provide intelligence uh, to, to the to the to the u.s government i think okay. what he wants to do is to really identify deep hidden patterns within these data sets because sometimes when we look at data right we can get so just lost in the data and, and you know it's, it's just so important and i think what they're trying to do is really try to make sense of all these various varying data points and just try to find all these deep insights and i think more importantly they, it also helps to facilitate these deep insights from the analysts who are looking at the data to the actual ones, to the actual guys on the ground who are actually then basically actioning upon this data. So it's mm. primarily used across governments and also in um, on the commercial side, also in the financials industry, especially with fraud investigations. So I think that that's really mm. um gotten. Foundry, okay. which is the second one, Foundry is actually a central operating system or OS for this data. It what I want to do is basically it brings and integrates and analyzes all this data they need all in exactly one place. I think the way about Foundry does is that if an ex, if a user they want to experiment or test new ideas, this is what actually Foundry allows them to test and say, okay, based on this data, if I we try try to change this and experience this, can what what can we do and what can we achieve? So the way the way some some of the guys are actually now thinking about how Foundry is, and this is a very nice analogy. They say Foundry is to app developers this decade what AWS was to them last decade. Mm. So. A lot of the Foundry customers now, actually majority of them, uh, or all of the commercial customers actually use Foundry. And some, cu- some government customers still do. So I think Foundry Got is on. really the big push um, for, for Palantir.
0: Got it. Apollo, can you, do, you know, do you know some of the clients uh, that are using Foundry right now? So...
1: Yeah. So I think found, found, Foundry, one of the biggest ones you can see is Airbus. So literally the Airbus mm. do the entire um, OS literally on, on Foundry. And, this is and, for making planes for making things and, 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 and for flight management.
0: Oh, okay. Cool.
1: Yeah, so that, that was, I was like, when, I, when I read it about Airbus, I was like, oh, wow, this is like really,
0: really cool. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Okay, so cool. Actually, so actually that's the big push for...
1: Skywise, um, just, to, yeah. just to share a bit more. So Airbus actually uses what we call Skywise. It connects 9,000 aircraft across 100 airlines. So if you think mm. about it, the more industry OS, like kind of Palantir basically built for all of them the stronger penalty becomes because you know when we build such a a very strong OS for the the airlines right in this case for Airbus I can tell you that you know we are going to be using this for a very very long time because planes are still going to be a long long, so as a result you have high switching costs very high durability very high recurring revenues just to give you one sense of how one single um, solution is
0: got it got it okay cool so foundry would then be uh i mean we're going to talk about apollo in a second but um which is that i think the third product line but foundry would then be the big push in order to scale away from say the government agencies and, and so on and so forth cool, That you feel.
1: exactly okay. and, and that's that's what we really have is really integrating the customer's data and and and, and bringing that insights and using gotham to, to, to bring along with it
0: got it cool uh yeah tell us a bit about apollo Mm.
1: Apollo is really a single control layer for delivery updates so let me try to put that into phrase. In right yeah I think English please just <laughs> basically one point where you know wherever I can de- I can deliver um, you know in terms of all the results and where all the customer really wants to access that's mm. really what what Apollo does so it can be on cloud meaning you know if I'm, if I'm based anywhere it can be on-prem meaning I'm in the office I can also be allowing someone to be actually using it and where Apollo really is right now uh, is that majority of all of their cu- commercial customers actually use Apollo. So you can you can start to realize right, Gotham mostly government, some mm. financial services on the fraud side, foundry. All commercials definitely use it, and Apollo, you know, same same way. as well, all commercial customers are using it because a lot of the commercial customers, as we have, have been shifting from on-prem or on-premise, uh, you know, in the old in the olden days where we actually own a lot of the guys own their own data services, own yep. yes, own their own servers, and they started shifting to more to the cloud, right. So I think yeah. there has been now a hybrid of you know, from on-prem to a kind of hybrid on on-prem and, and also with the cloud and also more towards the cloud, right? Um, and that's why I think that's that's where Apollo decided you know it's so important because I can't even be just sitting in the office and using Foundry. <laughs> Sometimes mm. I might be you know off the ground, you know away from the office on site on 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 a certain venue. I need to be using that, and I think that's that's why Apollo really helps to bring um, the, the whole entire system um, basically um, you know end to end.
0: Got it. And I mean, the question that that coming back to as well is it's a high cost to get started, right? There's a lot of of initial cost that a company and and big companies we need to go in and and in order to use any of these product lines. So, and and a lot of companies won't be able to afford that. So how would you see Palantir scaling in this regard, right? So you've got Airbus, which is a massive, massive company. Mm -hmm. Of course, you've got the US government. You've probably got other governments involved as well, not just the, the US. But these are big ticket items. These are com- the companies that can afford it. What about the, you know, the, the bigger companies, but not so big that they think, you know, a million dollars a pop is is too too much?
1: Hmm. No, Rakesh, I think you asked a really great question. I think the way, if you think about most how, how most companies tend to scale, they either do it to approach, right? They either go for the very big customers first, and then, you know, the, the, the very big enterprise customers. And then after that, they start scaling down to the, to the, to the meat section, and scale down to the SMB section. Right? Or you can mm. also then start from the SMB section, the small, medium enterprise businesses, and then scale up, right? I think where, where Palantir does, is the, 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 the first one that I mentioned, basically. So it started on the on the very big customers, right? Where, you know, the the, the the R pools, or what we call the average revenue per user is extremely large, which I'm sure we'll go through later. But I think they started from that very large end, and I think they're trying to expand this. So so okay. if you think about it, Palantir, because the end-to-end solution is so robust and so good, a lot of this has really been solving very big problems. And that's what high is, right? And of course, the world has an unlimited amount of big problems that we, that we need to solve. Absolutely. But there, there are some ones that, that, are, that are more valuable than others. Just to give you one context, right? Um, in UK, they, during the whole COVID time, they mm. actually tried to bring, um, you know, do it, bring up a test and trace. And that they, for the test and trace program, which they tried to do, right? They actually spent 155 million um, pounds. Just in 2020, oh, wow. to 2021 alone, right? And they struggled to provide or to produce the, the desired outcome. What happens is that they actually started using um, foundry, and the mm. two-year license itself only cost 25 million, and and they actually managed to deliver the result, right? So just it, to just to think about it, you can be spending so much more money, but if mm. you don't you know give that desired outcome, and and you sometimes it's really about it's already about thinking thinking right rather than you know than than just trying to, to do it yourself someone can actually do it much better so the way to think about it is they try to do do the big solutions they're attacking these very very big problems and that's yeah. why now they started to scale back you know to, to the meat sections they are also providing um basically foundry for startups as well they're going down foundries for for the smaller even even for the startups and and in smaller sections right they're trying to make it more popular and i think we will share a bit more about how how they have done it uh, via the modular because right now you have kind of like a full solution Yep. But when they do it, try a modular approach because ultimately people cannot pay. So you give them modular, right? And then they slowly mm. upsell. They try this, oh, it's great. Then they buy something, they, buy, they get an extra one, right? Or maybe they first start off with, um, you know, they first start off with Gotham first. Or they find, oh, okay, it's great. It provides data analytics, But I need to then now, let's let's now try to aggregate our data. So let's, let's you know, upsell, right? And let's got, it it, got it, got it. And then after that, okay, now, guys, okay, let's roll out across the entire firm. Let's add Apollo. So I think that's how they, they try to do that. The, the unfortunate bit is, I guess, most businesses don't wish to pay an upfront um, yeah, exactly. uh, value upfront because until until you provide certain value, right? I think so. Absolutely. I think this unfortunately, um, you know, it's just how how we how, how we humans operate, and that's how um, they are starting to kind of redesign um, Foundry even uh, to do it via this modular approach
0: got it okay cool so then just as a quick recap here they started off of course as as a big enterprise sales right and i believe it was it was u.s government i think they were the ones that helped locate osama as well right 2011 was it um yes yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. I was reading that before. Actually, that was that's pretty interesting, right? So then I guess they found their clientele and that gained a lot of trust in in that region. Now they're looking to scale that, really improve that, and and scale downwards towards the the big mass of of companies that they could be targeting. Mm. So take us through a little bit about the the numbers, right? So I think our listeners here want to know a bit about the numbers, uh, in terms of cash, in terms of FCF, in terms of ARPU, what you're looking at, uh, and of course you talked a lot about retention. So why don't we go through that as well?
1: Sure. Let's run through a, a bit of, of their financials, right? So I think if you look at their full year 21 revenues, it was about 1.5 billion. And they they, mm. they end up growing at about 41%. I right. think if you look at their cash flow margins, their, 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 their operating cash flow, what we call OCF margins, were 22% yes. and they were improving.
0: So they this is 21 20, to Q4 21?
1: Uh, no, this is full year 21. Full year 21, okay. Full year 21. So the, the OCF margins were 22%. The free mm. cash flow, what we call SCF margins, were 28%. There are very few companies with north of 25% free cash flow margins. Yeah. Even very few SaaS companies, right? Okay. So if you think about it, Pantheon almost operates with a rule of almost 80, uh, which is a very good balance between, high, I would say, fairly moderately high growth, 40 plus percent, mm. high cash flow growth as well, which was also growing still about there. Uh, it. That said, I would I would I would categorize Palantir as not being a very fast grower. It's not it's not a company that's gonna grow, you know, like, like weeds, right? It's probably not gonna grow like north of 60, 70, 80 percent. But right. it can be a very durable grower of greater than 30 plus 30 percent plus. And that's why even management is able to provide more than like a five year forecast and says, you know, we think that Pantheon can grow at at greater than 30 percent growth rates for a very long time.
0: Got it. And, and that's interesting, right? That, you know, full year 21 uh, saw FCF increase, saw cash increase. I think I was looking at the financials as well, mm. where, you know, previously they were burning through piles of cash, right? 2019, mm. 2020. Um, what, what sort of changed? I, I think it was
1: really, if you think about it, right? It's ultimately a SaaS company. And, and in a SaaS company, you would have fixed cost leverage. And when you have customers that come in, what we call contribution margins, right? When you start coming mm-hmm. in, all this or the the basically the revenues will basically far outweigh the fixed costs, and operating leverage will really kick in and that's where profitability really 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 jumps through the roof. And I think that's what they have been trying to. I think the really thing about Palantir is that because it it, it as a business itself, it has such a long term life, just to give share some share some idea, right? Yeah. The weighted average duration of Palantir's contracts are three point five years. Majority of most contracts actually start for five years. It's just that the mm. only difference is that the U.S. federal government cannot actually exceed one year. So if you think about it, if the U.S. government can do long-term contracts, the duration sure. of their contracts are superbly wrong, right? And you look at all SaaS companies, there are very few SaaS companies that have actually have contracts of not for two years. The only ones are mm. probably the cloud titans, right? Your AWS, your Azure, and those, right? Other than that, the most I've seen is two years. And for someone to be solving a really tough problem and and do five-year contracts and have yes. customers sign that... Do you, it is it is it is very it is very unique and, and I think that brings extra eyeballs and and see, right, Got and it. and I think that's really where the case and you can see uh, they're just it's just such an extremely extremely you know uh, was it predictable and very recurring company that is really trying to solve the hardest problems, and I think that's one way to really think about it and the net dollar retention was. I mean, it's not like superbly high above 150%, but if you think about it, the net dollar retention is 131%, which means-
0: 131, sorry. 131,
1: that? right? 131. That's good. So if, if customers, if they don't acquire new customers, revenues are still going to grow at 30 plus percent. KG. Yeah. So if I think about it, you know, I think the revenue, the minimum revenue growth of 30%, uh, you know, I think it's it's, it's, fair, it's, it's okay. So as long as to keep adding customers, they should be able to grow between 30 to 40 plus percent, you know, at least for the next couple of years. And I think that gives me this, the weighted duration of the contracts um, gives me so much more comfort. And if Got you think it. about it, their deal value is actually 3.8 billion, which also has rose around 35%, which means, you see, yeah, the Sorry, so each deal
0: is at 3.8 billion.
1: Sorry, the remaining deal value, so meaning, for example, now they're preparing all their contracts, every, every year they recognize revenues, right? Mm. So the remaining deal revenue that is pending to be recognized as revenues is 3.8 billion.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. So you think about it, 3.8 billion versus 1.5 billion. You know that they have, they have revenues
0: for the next two years. Don't have to worry. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Okay, cool. I mean, yeah. one of the one of the things out there and, you know, when my, you know, uh, coconuts out there that have been commenting on us asking for Palantir is very much why they're burning through the cash, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, what is management doing? They had, I think, a massive increase of cash in 2019 cash burn mm-hmm. and their revenue didn't grow that much. Um the way the way that you have put it, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that they were investing in the product, right? They were building Foundry, they were building Apollo, they were building Gotham, and now that they are at, at a level that they're ready, we saw in full year 2021 that FCF actually was growing, right? Because they didn't need to inject that cash into the product to to grow that. Is that about right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And in addition, right, they were also um, expanding their sales force quite a fair bit as well. And okay, so, so they started a sales Salesforce. Force, yeah, correct. So I think okay, that's, that's also, good. You know, you want to make it more scalable, and as a result, uh, the comp has also gone up, and uh, you know in terms mm. of the, the stock-based comp and everything has also gone up, and also that has uh, sucked up a bit of cash. But of course, stock-based comp is not really cash. But where I think more that Salesforce expansion took a bit of time, and you know you have to ramp up your certain fixed costs right by hiring salespeople before Absolutely. the revenues actually come in. So I think this was kind of like that one or two year, um, you know, I'll say the valley. Where, where, you, mm. your, where your costs are still rising and your revenues have not come in because the sales have not actually kicked in ex- with the extra deals that come in.
0: Okay, got you. Okay, cool, this, is, this helps. Now, I want to talk a little bit about TAM and what's next for mm-hmm. Palantir before we end off the episode, but how's their debt looking? You talked a lot about debt in terms of uh, interest rates rising, all of that this year, so take us through that.
1: Yeah, I think the, if I look at it, Palantir is one of the strongest balance sheets. right? They have, they have, they have cash of 2.3 billion, uh, yeah. They have zero debt and they have a 200 million unutilized lending facility. So, just looking, I just look mm. at me, you know, uh, whether they the cash, cash versus debt. So, lots of cash, zero debt, um, free cash flow positive, very durable revenues. Um, you know, I think it provides a very strong fortress balance sheet.
0: Got it. Zero debt. Okay, so they don't have a mortgage now, but they do have a 200 million lending facility. So, if they want to move into a debt ratio, they can. Yes, they can. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, so you mentioned, right, moving to TAM now, right? We've got mm. the big companies which are high in value, right? You mentioned three three point five years on average, but actually most of their contracts are five years. And now they're trying to go down and and hit the the commercial companies, right? Not the not the Airbuses, but the smaller ones. <laughs> mm. Um so what's the what's the TAM here? What's the projection in terms of, of revenue and, and all of that for each? I think we don't need to go through each of the products, but as a combined mm. What do you think it is for the next three to five years?
1: I think Panative basically estimates the TAM to be north of 100 billion. So I just think about just the you okay. some, some perspective, their revenues are around 1.5 billion. I mean, I don't think obviously Panative can hit um, 100 billion in terms of revenues, yeah. but I think it's probably going to move directionally towards that because they're really solving such a big problem.
0: Mm. Okay, so that's their TAM and what competition? Now, the other one is they mentioned the harder the problem, the better it is for them. So what's the competition like? Who are they? Uh,
1: yeah, I think I think it brought so this is so this is so something because in terms of competition, I think that Palantir is really the top dog and the only dog in the field so far. Uh, I don't think that okay. it's really one competitor that's exactly doing exactly what they're doing. I would say if they if I had to name one, the closest would probably be IBM Watson. But that is purely something that is automated, right? So I think that's quite different. Mm-hmm. And and what they are trying to fundamentally compete or is really customers trying to develop their own software. <laughs> And 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 it's okay. not really competing against other competitors. So I think that's really just that biggest competitor. And as long as they keep can they can manage to convince customers that you know use our use ours don't build yours. Mm. And I think that's 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 just that just that biggest win.
0: Got it. Okay. Cool. So I get what you mean. I'm looking at like sort of MuleSoft, but it doesn't really look like a competitor actually. No. No. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just but even,
1: even if cool. I think about it like. Uh, there are some other companies, right? You know, like your Snowflake, your AWS, Azure, uh, yep. Google, IBM. They all offer very similar thing, but they're just moving like data from from data warehouses. But actually, Palantir can actually interact with all of them. So I think that's very very different. So Palantir actually, you know, managed to kind of integrate with some with some of these as well.
0: Got it. And and Palantir, take us through this, right? So if you look at all, you know, your Azure, so all the other data platforms out there. Mm. I mean, you're looking at the, the commercial companies comparing, mm. right? Any data platform is effectively an indirect competitor of, of Palantir. Yeah. And you mentioned that they ha- actually integrate most of these uh, data platforms. Mm. Now, what is the competitive advantage that Palantir gives over any of these data platforms? Is it prediction? What would it be?
1: I think the first thing is when I mentioned just now, it's really for one, it's really about the data security and privacy because the customers still own the data, it's not housed mm. uh, you know, in, 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 in the cloud. Um, does that platform capability and the functionality really just being able to just provide all of that at much lower cost versus what they have done to provide? I think okay. the ease and the speed of adoption and use. I've seen some of them. Uh, you know, once they the moment they integrate the data, the the insights. I saw, saw some of the tests. Uh, it, it is really quite a, quite remarkable. So I think that's really just the, that 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 ease of use.
0: Mm. Okay. Ease of use is a fair point. <laughs> it's not easy to use a data platform. So yeah. um, absolutely. I think the other big one that we can look at as well is utilization rate of the companies and yeah. of the different employees in there as well. All right. So, I mean, we've talked all about the good things uh, of Valentia, right? Uh, where they've come from, what they're looking yeah. at, what's next for them uh, as they're looking to scale into the the bigger, larger segment of, of the companies and, and private companies. But what are the risks that you see could be uh, a downside for, for Palantir.
1: I think some of the risks that I, I primarily see around um, forests The first one is uh, the durability of the revenue growth, right? We think that mm. Palantir, in terms of the of the contract length, is fairly is fairly long. The question is, as I guess, as Palantir basically moves down from um, you know, from from the large enterprises to the smaller ones, how long are the are these the sales contracts going to be? It's probably going to pull uh, if, if not lower, you know the contract length. The mm. question is, you know, would it Bring um, the durability lower, but could be you know increasing the entire revenue wallet right I think that's, that 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 balance so I think it's really about Palantir managing that balance and, and, and bringing bringing it right across. but you must understand every every deal takes between twelve to eighteen months
0: hmm.
1: to bring to fruition so that it takes it takes a while so an investor really in Palantir has to be really patient and let and, and once the business kicks in, right, you know, you're just going to get revenues for a very, very long time. But you're just going to be very, very patient and, and let that, let the whole thing come in. So I think that's, that's one way to be thinking about. The other one is also um, the ability to retain and to grow employees. Uh, penetrous, penetrous, um glass, glass door ratings, I, I would say on the CEO ratings, is not particularly high, about 80 plus percent. But one thing about on the employee standpoint is that they are really young. They work very, very long hours. But they're mm. extremely loyal, and, and their alumni is really really strong. The penalty alumni, those guys, already say they really like really love what, what, what they do as a business. It's almost Tesla, Tesla like because from from that from that perspective, and I think that's really one. Mm. Of course, if they lose key employees, you uh, know, employees are not able to deliver what it is. Uh, the, the, the product, the revenue, the sales, uh, you know, the support that that could be a, a bigger problem. The third one that I have really is about the reputation risk in terms of the businesses that Palantir might support. Palantir has also stated that you know we will support um, US and its allies. Right? They also stated that we will not support China. Uh, oh, I see. I think staying on that front, uh, it's, it's extremely key, that's at least on the government side, right? Mm. I think that's, that's key, right? I think to a lesser extent, um, I would say the high stock-based compensation um, prior, to be honest, in the last, last couple of years or I was actually very greatly concerned in terms of the high stock-based con- compensation for Palantir because um, that has actually caused. Cost- uh, you know profitability for penalties to be burning cash or what we call uh, earnings in, in quite a fair bit because of the high stock-based compensation. Obviously, those are non-cash. But I think that dilution can 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 greatly destroy value. And I was looking at it prior and and it was destroying a lot of value in the sense because they were basically um, diluting far more than the right. than the, the amount of shareholder value that they were creating. And I think that hmm. if you can think about it, probably the good the best thing is um, we have probably endured most of it. And and going at this entry where you know, the majority of that of the compensation has been paid uh is gonna be quite good and if you think about it, the latest earnings call they actually stated that uh um, the stock based comp will not grow basically at a high at no more than five percent and if you think about it actually the current um the current stock based options that they have is is just at most two percent so they have actually started issuing a, a lot lesser uh you know uh, op- uh, stock based compensation as well in terms of stock options. So I think I can see that going significantly a lot lower. So I will see stock based margins based on revenues should come off. I will see non-get profitability continue to increase, but gap profitability also you know start to trail and start to improve especially in the next um twelve to eighteen months or so. That's it, yeah. So I think that 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 help, that should help quite a bit uh from this from this front.
0: Got it. Cool. Awesome. So what is the key takeaway right so as we end off this this segment here on on palantir what's the key takeaway for all our listeners out there that maybe tldr
1: (laughs) i think if you think about it palantir is
0: really it's it's an extremely durable company
1: really Mm. trying to provide actionable data insights that a large part of the world can't do it because we assume we are now awash in in this environment of data and I think that mm. that is extremely key. You know, it's, it's really about building software that's really helping the world solve problems that matter and making the world safer and better. And that's why I kind of it still deserves a uh, you know a space in our port, in the portfolio. And it itself as a business, um, it's it's extremely durable, right? I think it's, it should be able to grow north of thirty uh, percent revenues, top line, and it's and it's I would say free cash flow extremely positive. Uh, that gives us a lot. Run run by very good founders, very good management. And, and solving very big problems that are very hard for anyone else to solve. So I think as itself, generally on our side we tend to like to focus on, on enduring companies, and I think that mm. Predator is one such very enduring company that that I think um, could will continue to grow for a very for a fairly long time. That uh, that that I guess at at the current self at the current values would probably yeah. prove uh, will probably prove uh, to be a, a, a deep screaming buy, you know, in the coming years and decades ahead.
0: Got it. it. Awesome. Thanks, Eugene. So, last question, right, for our coconuts out here. Now, my question to you is: for yourself, right, for your you know vision fund, or even for you personally, where would you put this in your portfolio? Right, is this the slow play? Um, Is this the, the the big chunk? Right, for your safe safekeeping, I guess, if you if you will.
1: Yeah. I think the way I think about it Palantir it's not exactly like say the, the the highest risk but actually for me it's actually a um I would say a high level conviction and I actually, actually just started a, a a starter position and I'm looking to build it to a to much larger position because I think that um, the market is underpricing or or not being able to understand what Palantir does and and really appreciate the durability of 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 the business and of the of the franchise I think they're very focused on, on this previous, um, the burning cash. They also, you know, they also focus on, on the types of customers and businesses that they serve and they're not trying to really understand um, what they're trying to do. I think they are also underestimating um, possibly what uh, Foundry, when you're going to expand out to, to more customers on, on that. I think they're really underestimating that front. And I think that's where it can be, uh, be duly d- 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 rewarding from, from, from that perspective.
0: Got it. Cool. Awesome. Thanks for that, Eugene. Uh, Coconuts out there, you know, hope you learned a thing or two with Palantir. Thanks for the recommendation. As usual, please go ahead, let us know, slide into our DMs. Let us know if uh, any other stocks you'd like us to do and we'll go find the the relevant expert to to get that to you as well. Thanks again. And of course, thanks, Eugene, for for coming on board and having this time with me.
1: Thank you so much for, for, for having me. All right, bye. Bye.
0: Hey, Coconuts. So I hoped you learned something useful today definitely recognize that investing is a personal decision. We are not giving you recommendations here, but are always happy to geek out with you about different interesting companies and trends for the future. This series definitely has a lot more depth than terms, and we want you to tell us what stock to analyze. So if you have any feedback or ideas, do drop us a line through our socials or email us at hello at financialcoconut.com. See you in our next episode.